welcome to the Saint and Sinner podcast. This is a reformed podcast for God's people to find their rest in the finished work of Christ. My name is Brian and I'm joined by my co-host Daniel. And today's episode is part two of a two-part series on justification. If you haven't listened to part one yet, please go back and listen to it now. Today's episode will pick up right where we left off. Yeah, and so maybe from there, Brian, we can talk about some of the traps that we can we can fall into. And so I've experienced some of these in various ways as a pastor. Where so so justification by works would be this feeling that I need to do more. A justification by feelings would be I need to feel something. You know, I don't know if I'm actually safe because I want to feel something more in my heart. A justification by remorse would be I need to sense more guilt. Have you ever, I don't know if you've ever come across those people. <laughs> like, I just don't feel guilty enough about my sins and what I've done. I, I need more of that. And then God will. And they listen to that sermon and they go, well, that guy, that preacher was great. I felt really convicted. He really crushed me. And that's how we measure a good sermon these days. Yeah. And then the next day they, they fall back into the same pattern. So there's no lasting fruit, right? And then, you know, justification by layaway plan is I can pay God back, you know, after all that he's done for me. And so we think with all of these things that I make myself a little righteous and God does the rest. It's Jesus, but, but really it's me. And then you've got justification by faith. And justification by faith is saying, I trust in the perfect, unchanging righteousness of Christ because he pays for my lawlessness, my lovelessness, my guiltiness, and my self-righteousness. God justifies the ungodly. And another way I think that we do this is with sincerity. Well, it's tempting to, to probe into the motivation of our repentance and faith, isn't it? And ask questions like, am I sorry enough? Am I sincere? But the more we question the intensity of our repentance, I don't know if you find this, but I do, that the more I doubt the Father's forgiveness, where I become obsessed with my contrition and confession and moral transformation, and so what we're doing is we're trying to make repentance a good work that justifies us, which actually undermines the finished work of Christ. It's kind of like taking down the body of Jesus from the cross and nailing in its place the corpse of my confession. But justification doesn't come to us because we're contrite or sincere. It's an alien righteousness that comes cascading into our lives. And so it's unchanging, undefiled, it's kept in heaven. It's like what um, Bunyan said in his book, A Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. It's his conversion moment when, when he said, um, this, this sentence fell upon my soul. Your righteousness is in heaven. And Bunyan said, there I saw my righteousness standing before God. And it's Jesus Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, my justification is unchanging. And so God can't say to me that he lacks my righteousness. There's nothing that I can do to increase my righteousness. There's nothing that I can do negatively to decrease my righteousness because it is Jesus Christ himself. I think one of the things about our repentance is, one, it is a gift from the Lord that we receive repentance. That's something that's not produced in us, but it's given to us by the Lord. It's a grace. And not only that, the Westminster Confession of Faith says that repentance is not to be rested in. Sure, it's necessary. We can't expect eternal life without repentance, but it is not what we rest in. We yeah. rest in our faith in Christ. He alone is the object of our hope. Yeah, and repentance flows from faith. It doesn't precede faith. Hmm. And sometimes I think there's a bit of confusion with that, isn't there? Where I, I remember being in a conversation with a pastor a couple of years ago who was telling me that repentance comes before faith. 
I remember asking him, how, but, uh, you know, I know you look shocked by that, Brian, but I, I think a lot of people believe that. My question is, how could that be? Because repentance is something I do. It is a work. It's a good work. A turning from sin and turning to God is something I do. How can that precede faith? Because faith is what unites me to Christ through which I receive these things. Now, what we're going to say is the thief on the cross received the gift of repentance. He didn't have time to exercise that gift in visible ways, but he had the gift. Now, you have to understand when we say faith precedes repentance, we're not saying that somebody received faith and two days later they received the gift of repentance. It occurs almost simultaneously in terms of how we perceive it, but in a logical order, in a way that isn't defined by time, faith comes before repentance, and then we are given that secondary gift. Now, the two are given inseparably. You'll never have one without the other, but faith rests on Christ, and repentance is necessary, but not where we rest. Yeah, that's great. I remember just Casey Ryle on this was really helpful in his commentary on Luke. I think it's Luke chapter three where he says that no one is ever saved by their repentance. And we sing about it in Rock of Ages. Could my zeal no respite no? Could my repentant tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Um, and JC Ryle was saying that you know, repentance doesn't ever save anyone um, because it's the blood of Christ alone that, that saves. And yet, J.C. Ryle then went on to say, but no one will be saved without repentance. Again, it's a really helpful distinction, I think. You're not saved by your repentance, but you won't be saved without it. Because everyone that believes, believes repentantly, is a penitent believer. Yeah, so I look at these two gifts given at the same point in a person's life. When a Christian comes to faith, at the same Point, he is given the gift of repentance. God does not provide one gift without the other. And so this is why the scriptures talk about a repentance that leads to life. This is because when referring to repentance, they're also referring to the faith that they receive alongside repentance. Now, we're not saying we shouldn't repent. We're not saying you shouldn't try to be penitent or kind of remove sin from your life and live holy. But what we are saying is that's not where you're going to find your rest. You know, if you keep looking there, you're always going to be dissatisfied with yourself. You're always going to feel like a failure. You're never going to feel like you're enough. The only place that we can find true rest and comfort is in the finished work of Christ, the one who is unchanging, the one who is always righteous, who doesn't ebb or flow in his affections to his father. And in him, we are made perfect like he is because he ties us together with himself. And so if you want to find rest, you want to find hope and assurance, you're not going to find it in anything that you can do, like your repentance, but you're going to find it in Christ alone. And repentance doesn't take hold of Christ. Only faith can do that. Brian, what would you say to people that would turn to the book of Acts and see Peter's sermons where he'll say things like, repent for the forgiveness of your sins? And if people say, look, there you go, um, we repent, and then we're forgiven of our sins, what, how do you respond to, to that? So the call to repentance is almost a call to believe as well. The people there would have understood these terms because when I'm calling somebody to repent, I understand that something internally is happening in the people that God is bringing to life. He's giving people faith. And so those who step forward 
are those who have confidently set their hopes on the message that Peter has given. Now, on another aspect of this, very oftentimes when you hear the call, repent, it is alongside the call to be baptized. Now, I know I'm a, a pedo Baptist and I believe that infants should be baptized, but when an adult convert, like when an adult convert comes into the faith, the baptism, looking forward to perceive the waters of baptism, that's my profession of faith. Yeah, so, so Luther would be right, wouldn't he? And he would say that baptism there and acts are simultaneous with faith, the word faith. It is, it's just the same as saying repent and believe for the forgiveness of your sin. Mm. Yeah. And you're right, you know, when, when, when we're repenting, we're repenting towards something. What is that something? It's towards the God who I believe will be merciful to me. I don't repent towards a God who I think will be horrible to me. <laughs> and so I already have faith. I have faith in, in a God who is merciful to sinners and gracious to sinners. And so my repentance clearly comes after faith because I wouldn't repent towards the God that I don't know. And the thing about repentance is when we're talking about our repentance in the Christian life, it's imperfect. It has failings. We don't get it right every single time. And so the way I like to talk about repentance is it is a turning to God. Well, faith turns to God for the salvation from the penalty of your sins, but repentance turns to God for the saving from the power of your sins. And so both find their hope in Christ alone and not in ourselves. Now, the way we often see this come up in the church today isn't really going to be, oh, I, I failed to meet that law, or well, I committed adultery, I murdered someone. You might see that, or I murdered someone with my words and my thoughts, or committed adultery in my heart. Now, we do see that. That's definitely present. That a lot of people do that in the church. People are struggling with their sin of lust and, and, and hatred or gossip or any of those things, and, and that needs to be worked on. But one of the other areas that we see is just day-to-day -day life. You know, the question I have to ask is, how are you justifying yourself? If you're not justifying yourself by faith alone in Christ, how else are you attempting to do that? And so there's a, a very helpful book called Seculosity by David Zoll. And in it, he argues that even though society has become less religious, it's actually more religious than ever. Because we are seeking out a justification in something else beside Christ. It is the busyness of life. You know, if you ask somebody how they're doing, they're very often going to tell you, oh, it's really busy. We're doing this. We've got this going on. We've got that going on. And it's almost as if they're saying this because they think it's going to give themselves more value and worth. I will finally feel like I'm enough because I'm doing so much stuff. I'm important. Or maybe in romance, you know, if I get the right marriage and build a family and have all these things, finally my life will be worth it. I will be enough if I have that spouse, that perfect home. Parenting, technology, work, all these things that we look to to try to justify ourselves. If I can move myself up the ladder of employment, I can finally feel like I'm worth something. I finally feel like I'm enough. So he goes through chapter by chapter, different aspects of life where we try to justify ourselves. And this is what you really need to hear. Whatever you're chasing after in life, hoping that it will finally make you feel like you're enough, hoping that that thing will finally give you rest, not going to. It's not going to fulfill you. It's not going to satisfy you. You will still not feel like you're enough because you're not enough. You are not enough 
You fail, you get things wrong, you are sinful, you fall short, just like myself and Daniel. Your only hope is another who is enough for you, one who has lived a life of perfection in every measure. Every aspect of humanity was carried out in Christ, and he never failed once. And then he goes to the cross and dies in your place. So if you are a person who struggles as a parent and you get things wrong, maybe you're overly harsh at times, or maybe you're not present enough, well, those imperfections are made perfect in Christ. If you're someone who is a terrible friend and you get things wrong and you really messed up a relationship, well, you are made perfect in Christ and his righteousness has far-stretched arms that reach every corner of your life. You are made perfect in him and him alone. There's not a single place in your life that you can point to that has not been made perfect in Christ. And so the idea here is not to look to other means of justification, but in Christ alone. Yeah, that's great. Righteousness is a performance record, isn't it? And I think we all understand that that need to perform. So if you want a job where you get a resume, and that resume has all of your accomplishments on it, and you take it to the employer, and it's got the best you on that thing, you know, because of these grades, I am worthy. Uh, and then if you're good enough, the door then opens for you. And I think this is how people think, isn't it? We need to get out our spiritual resume. And if we're good enough, we're accepted. It's kind of like Britain's got talent. But God is the judge and we're on the stage. And we need to perform in front of him. And if we're good enough, God will hit the golden buzzer and, and we'll be welcomed in. And you know what? The Apostle Paul tried that in Philippians 3. He, he pulls out his resume. And it's better than everyone else's. The Hebrew of Hebrews, uh, he was from the tribe of Benjamin. That's the law. He was blameless. And Paul begins to realize it's not good enough. It's done. Literally, he's pretty much saying it's crap. All of my good works, everything that I've achieved, this enoughness, it's a load of crap. It doesn't measure up. Mm. And so what does God do? God reveals a righteousness. It isn't just a good record. It's a divine righteousness. It's a perfect record given freely as a gift. And when we have that, it's the end of our struggle for worth and our qualification. You don't need to try and measure up anymore. It's why Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, I don't care if anyone judges me because I've already been judged. He realizes that judgment day has already happened for him in advance at the cross of Christ. And so he's like, look, God has stamped his amen on my life through Jesus Christ. I don't need to feel what people think of me. Hmm. It's deeply liberating. It means you can go into every relationship, every conversation, Every situation, knowing that you are valued and loved and that God has stamped his amen on your life. Deeply liberating. I mean, how would we live our lives if that's what we took into the workplace or into our homes? No longer feeling like our successes and failures in those categories of life determine who we are in value and worth and status. If we kind of really understood that Jesus Christ gives us his perfection and that's who we are, we have worth and value because. He's infinitely worthy and valuable, and he shares that with us by union. Well, then we can go into relationships and into the workplace and into the home without the fear of failure marking us, but knowing that we are hidden Christ and we have the freedom now to just love our neighbors, love our family members, love our church family, and do good by them because there's no longer a fear of what will happen if we that doesn't make sense though, Brian, because doesn't, doesn't all of this lead to ungodliness? Yeah, so, so if, I'm, if I'm justified by faith and it's nothing of me and, and Jesus has done it all and I'm clothed in his righteousness and no matter what sin I fall into, 
God's not going to take that righteousness away from me. <laughs> Why don't I just run headfirst into every kind of sin? Why don't I visit the brothel? Why don't I get drunk on Friday night? Why don't I cheat on my wife? Why, why aren't I mean to my kids? Why can't I just play up? Who cares? Mm. What's forgiven me? It's all going to be fine anyway. So this, and this was the criticism launched from the Roman Catholic Church towards Martin Luther. You're, you're an antinomian. You're setting up a system where the law does. By the way, uh, antinomianism means it's the position where we say that the law isn't applicable for the Christian believer anymore. So how, how isn't justification by faith alone? How does that not lead to antinomianism, lawlessness? So we would argue that it does not lead to antinomianism, not to lawlessness, because it changes the affections of the heart, where God writes the law on the hearts of believers, where he reshapes them into new creations and ties them together with Christ who provides for them not just the righteousness in which they stand perfect before a judge in heaven and made to be children of a loving God, but also a righteousness of Christ that truly shapes and molds and changes his people to look more and more like him every day. Now, that's not going to be a linear path where it's just onward and upward in a smooth, neat trajectory but that will be a shaky line. Sometimes there will be falls and stumbles. Sometimes you'll get up and it'll be on an upward trend. What we're saying is the righteousness of Christ is provided to us in whole. We receive status and we receive the renewed life. Yeah. And so what we're saying is we're not afraid of condemnation anymore. So, so 1 John says, perfect love casts out fear. What does John mean? He means the fear of condemnation. We don't fear condemnation anymore. Now, if you lose your fear, and then because of that, you lose your incentive to be good, then the only thing stopping you from being bad was fear. <laughs> if, if you live a good life because you want to avoid punishment, you're actually not being good. And so think of a marriage relationship. You imagine a marriage where you're good and kind to your wife because she's constantly threatening you with divorce. I would say that's not love. <laughs> That's not love. And also, that's, that's not a nice relationship to be in. And so is our relationship with God seriously like that? Where every day I wake up, I get out of bed in the morning, and God slaps me with the curses of the law again, says, look, you better measure up, or, or you're damned. Well, that doesn't create love. That doesn't create obedience. It creates the kind of obedience, I guess you can call it that, that you find uh, with the Israelites in Exodus 1 and 2 when they're enslaved to Pharaoh and he's, he's telling them to make bricks without straw. Sure, you can say that's obedience if you want, but there's no love. And so it's not true obedience. And so if we think back to Luther, um, what was it his, his priest said to him when he was kind of charging Luther with, you know your problem is you hate God. You hate God. That's your problem. And why could he say that of Luther? I mean, Luther was scrupulous. He was confessing as many of his sins as he could think of. He was trying to be holy. He was trying to live obediently to the law. Why would this man tell him, you don't love God, you hate him? Because Luther's affections were never changed. And so he was carrying out this obedience, not in love of the Father, but in hatred of him in fear of him, not a biblical kind of fear where it trembles at the love of God, but a fear that recoils away from the Father. 
And that's not fulfillment of the biblical understanding of like the law. That's that's not us obeying God really. It's just us checking all the right boxes. Yeah. So so think of the the first commandment: love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. The heart is included in that. And so if you're you're loving God because you're afraid of God, there's, there's obviously a difference between fearing the Lord and being afraid of God. If you're if you're just loving God because you're afraid of Him, you're afraid of His punishments, you're afraid that He's going to chastise you. You picture him like this disappointed police officer sitting in heaven. Then you're not actually loving him from your heart. Who would love a love a, a God like that? No one would. And so you might be doing all of the right things. You might be ticking all the right boxes, but it wouldn't come from a place of love and affection towards him. And therefore, you're not fulfilling the law. You're actually not obeying the law because you've got a loving God as a part of that from the heart. We we look at the people in the church who work tirelessly to obey God's law, but they do it out of that fear or that hope of moving themselves up to the next ladder rung of righteousness, where they can finally be accepted or improve upon their acceptance with God. And the problem here is those actions that they fulfill in loving their neighbor, in being kind to them, in discipling somebody or providing a meal to a family in need, that's not actually loving. That's self-love. That's them using these people as stepping stones to build themselves up. So these individuals that they're working with are not objects of their affections. They are tools to make themselves better. Mm, that's good. Tim Chess is really helpful with this in his book. I think it's called Enjoying God, uh, where he talks about union and communion. And so our union with God is unchanging. It cannot be broken. God won't go back on his promises to us in Christ. And so no matter what I do, I'm always united to Christ. But then I also have communion with God. Now, communion is a two-way thing. So think of a marriage, right? Let's say I come home from work every day of the week. I step through the door. I go immediately upstairs. I don't say hi to my wife. I go to bed. I wake up in the morning, go to work. And then even on the weekends, I go and watch football, play football, don't spend any time with my wife. Am I still married to my wife? Am I still united to her? Well, yeah, of course I am. That's unbreakable. Do I have a, a fun communion and relationship with her? Well, no, because I'm not talking with her. I'm not spending time with her. Um, and so I think that's a really helpful dynamic to think about with union and communion. So the good works that we do or the, the bad works that we do, they do not break our union with God, but it will certainly change the way that you enjoy your relationship with God. So we're not saying we don't care about that communion part. We really do. You know, communion with God is so important. We want people to enjoy God, but from a place of rest, from a place of union, which is unbreakable. And so Romans 2, Paul will say it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. In Titus chapter 2, Paul will say that the grace of God has appeared, teaching us to say no to ungodliness. So what is it that what is it that makes me less ungodly? It's the grace of God that comes to me. And once I see the grace of God that Christ has first loved me, then I begin to love him. And when I love him, I want to please him. It's like a marriage. Absolutely. And on on the note of communion with God, we're not saying that today you had a few stumbles here and there and so that communion with god is fractured no we we are not perfect beings we are going to 
fail. We're going to get things wrong. We have still the sinfulness. This is the point of the podcast, saint and sinner. We still have that sinfulness in us that's wrestling with the new man, wrestling with the spirit of God within us. And so what we're talking about, the thing that shatters communion is an unrepentant lifestyle for a season where you kind of neglect the things of God and you get into this pattern where hopefully a brother or sister will follow you out of it. They will remind you of the grace of God, remind you of the gospel, and then you will turn back in faith and repentance to the Lord. So we're not saying just any time you have stumbled that that communion is shattered. We're saying, no, no, this is a kind of a pattern that takes place where God disciplines us. And he disciplines us as a loving father. Yeah, discipline. When you've got kids, (laughs) you realize that discipline is a good and loving thing, you know. So, 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 what about final justification? So, in Matthew twenty-five, Jesus speaks about the final judgment, and there in Matthew twenty-five, Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. And what's the measure by which Christ divides the two groups? It's loving care and works of mercy. And so when when Jesus says, I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. Stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. Sick, and you visited me. In prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, saying, when did we do all of this? And Jesus says, well, when you did it for my brothers, you, you did it for me. So come and enter into the kingdom. And so isn't this evidence that we're finally saved at the very end of the day, not by what Christ has done, but by what we do. And I think the answer is to that is obviously no. And so uh, the sheep are just as surprised as anyone that they're found worthy, by the way, in the passage. They're shocked. They're stunned. Uh, it doesn't appear that they're pursuing good works to merit eternal bliss. You don't have that anywhere in the passage. It's also interesting that Jesus says, come into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That, and so that grounds their right to enter, not in their own works, but in God's electing grace. So the good works were evidence of grace in their hearts. Now, another passage is is Romans 2, there in verses 6 to 13. It seems that God will finally judge us by how we've lived. But Paul says it's not the hearers of the law who are justified, but the doers of the law. Is Paul saying that the only way to be justified is to do the law? Well, yes and no. Think of the context. Uh, Paul's building up the case that neither Jew nor Greek can be justified by what they do. And so Paul's absolutely right. The doer of the law is justified. Amen to that. My problem is I don't do the law, (laughs) and neither do you. And so Paul's making the case that the law imprisons us in sin in in order to drive us to the gospel, in order to drive us to Christ. Because you'll get some people read, read Romans 2. Some of the commentaries do this, and they say, well, it's, you know, these are the works that come out from your, your faith. But I don't think Paul's actually saying that. He is saying that if you want to be justified, you need to be a perfect adherent to the law. Yes, that's correct. But none of us are. And so what's the law doing? It's throwing us upon the mercies of Jesus. It's directing us to him, the one who did fulfill the law. And that is imputed to us by his grace. And so the question becomes, does our sinfulness make impure our very being? Does our being impure cause our works to become impure themselves? What works of ours are left unstained by the remaining imperfections and sinfulness in us? So if we're not completely cleansed by Christ, completely made righteous in him, then 
and that there's some future justification by works, then how can that not stain the rest of our being? What good things have we done that will pass the test of God's judgment? You know, throughout Scripture, we are taught that impurity spreads. That which touches an impure thing becomes impure itself. So if we being sinful touch the good works we do, how do they not also become impure? Unless there is one who has purified our whole person and wrapped us so tightly together with himself that his righteousness is now ours and our guilt and shame have become his. Surely in this way, the works we do are purified alongside our whole person. And what we do in the name of the Lord, however imperfect, is acceptable to God the Father as if Jesus Christ himself has performed the very act because he washes our whole person. Now, if there isn't a all-encompassing justification from start to finish where it's just by faith alone and it's the one act when you profess faith you are justified and you will remain justified into eternity if that's not the case and there's some future justification it misunderstands what you receive because in this view you can't have received the whole person of Christ and his righteousness that covers every aspect of your being there has to be some part of you that is left untouched by his righteousness that you somehow need to perfect by your own good works. If it's all of Christ that you have received, then there can be nothing left for you to do. His work and his righteousness is perfect. Yeah, that's good. To wrap all of that up, how a person performs does not determine their status before God. Justification by grace alone is the pillow of comfort that stops us looking behind our shoulders worried that we're not doing enough. See, the truth is we'll never be enough. Christ is and always will be. So Christian, rest in him. You will never be more or less righteous than you are right now. You trust in Christ by faith. And so thanks for tuning in. Uh, we'll stop there and uh, please join us next time. Thanks.